0: now as well as some other um, uh, you can check that out and and if you are new today uh, just a special attention to the connection card which is in the back Uh, take a few minutes if you would fill that out we'd love the chance to get to know you a little better if you'd be willing to share some of that info with us Uh, and what you can do is you can drop it in the offering bag here in just a second or after the service today, uh, just outside of these doors, uh, find the Info Hub. And uh, we've got some great volunteers there that would love to meet you, tell you a little more about Genesis. And uh, you can drop that connection card off there. And uh, we, we've got a gift uh, that if we could give that to you with just a way of saying thanks uh, for coming as our guest today. Uh, we'd like to send that out with you uh, before you go. Uh, we take an offering uh, here every week at Genesis Church, and uh, as I was thinking, as we think about our mission as a church, we've been talking about that a little bit over the past weeks, this mission of helping people find their way back to God. Uh, when you give and when you give generously, uh, you're giving in such a way that helps make that possible. And uh, as we give, well, it's one of the reasons that we celebrate because as we give uh, towards the work of the Lord too, we're declaring him. We're declaring his praises and who he is and that he is Lord of all. And so I'm going to invite our host team to come forward. We celebrate uh, when we take an offering here at Genesis. And whether you choose to give here on a Sunday morning or if you use something like our online giving system, uh, we thank you for your generosity and for giving to the Lord's work uh, through Genesis Church. Hey, have you noticed uh, how there are more and more warning signs and labels like all over the place? Like everywhere you go, everywhere you turn, there's always a warning sign. I mean, I think out of the fear of a lawsuit. I mean, it, it just seems like every product, everyone thinks, you know, we we've got to put a warning label on this so that people don't get hurt. I mean, thinking about fireworks this past week and all of the fireworks, I think about that label on the firework that says, hey, warning, don't light this and put it in your mouth. I mean, you, you'd you think we wouldn't need a warning label for something like that, but we do. And so there are warning labels and signs all over the place. We've showed you some of these before, but let's look at a couple of them again. I thought, I thought these were quite clever. Here's one. Hey, touching wires causes instant death. And if that's not enough, there is a $200 fine as well, all right? You're, you're going to have to pay this. Somebody from your family is going to be responsible for this fine if you touch this wire. Or uh, how, how about this next one here? Warning, children left unattended will be sold to the circus. Uh, you might find that in the Gen Kids hallway, you know? I mean, we encourage you to kind of wander around a little bit after the service, but you've got to take your kids with you, all right? Don't leave them here. Uh, this next one, caution, this sign has sharp edges. Do not touch the edges of this sign, And then at the bottom it says, also the bridge is out up ahead. So uh, I think that's kind of funny. Or how about this one? Please be safe. Do not stand, sit, climb, or lean on fences. If you fall, animals could eat you and that might make them sick. All right, thank you. So stay back from the animals. And then uh, finally this one here, danger. Do not hold the wrong end of a chainsaw. And if those words aren't enough, there's an illustration to show you what that looks like. You know, hey, the chain, don't put your hand on it, you know. Again, why do we need a a label like this? You know, I mean, there just should be some common sense involved, right? I mean, why do we need all of these really dumb signs? Well, think about it. Maybe we're not quite as smart, you know, as we like to think we are. You know, my, my family, we were in Florida a few weeks back uh, for vacation. We spent a week uh, with my wife's family at the beach. And uh, with most public beaches today, they use this flag system. Uh, they use these flags as a warning system. And so if you're out at the beach and you look over to the flagpole and you see a green flag, it means that things are all clear. Uh, if you see a yellow flag, it means, say, hey, the water's a little rough, but proceed with caution. Uh, one of my favorites is the purple flag. The purple flag means that, hey, at some point in the last couple of days, we've noticed some dangerous marine life. But, hey, enjoy your day at the beach, you know, in the murky waters you can't see uh what's beneath but uh but also there's a red flag. A red flag system means stay out of the water altogether. Well, uh we had a great time at the beach with our family and uh thanks to a tropical storm in the Caribbean. Now thankfully we didn't get the rain, but what we did get were some of the rough waters uh in the Gulf uh for a couple of days and it was so bad one day that they posted the red flags. Again, the red flags mean caution, you know, the water's rough, rip tides, stay out of the water. But thinking they knew better, uh, all sorts of people ignored the flags, ignored the warnings of the lifeguards and ventured out into the water. I mean, we watched this uh, from the edge. And wouldn't you know it, later on that night, if you watch the news all up and down the Gulf Coast, there were just these story after story of water rescues because people weren't willing to pay attention to the warning signs. They just thought to themselves, hey, we know better than the experts in something like this. Well, for the next few weeks, we're going to be working through a section of the Bible that has a lot to do with these warning signs. And uh, today I want to introduce you to the prophets. And uh, if you've got a worship program and if you're taking notes, uh, you can write this down right at the top there. Uh, Prophets were messengers. Uh, They were special messengers. They were God's messengers. And they really served as a warning sign uh, for the people. Now, they came with a message that said, stay out of the water. Uh, you know, the prophets would come along and say, you know, the water's too dangerous. Or if you don't change directions, you're going to get into trouble. Somebody might get hurt. They they were like, stay away from this area. You're you're heading, you know, right now in, in a direction that's not good. It's time to back off. That's, that's what the prophets were there for. Again, these special messengers. Now, many times in the Bible, it would say, it says that God would rise up early, sending his prophets, his messengers to warn the people. Now, when it says rise up early, It doesn't mean that God got up extra early in the morning to warn his people. But what it really means is that before tragedy, before devastation ever struck, in his love, God would warn the people. Now, unfortunately, and we've seen this repeatedly in the reading of the story uh, over this past year together, you know, most of the time the people didn't listen. You know, they didn't pay attention to God's warning. And, you know, why? Well, more often than they realized and maybe for you and me too i mean we just we think we know more or we think we know something better than God. And, and so we're looking at these different stories of these different prophets together, prophets like Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah. We're going to reference some of these over the next couple of weeks. And we'll talk briefly about some of the others too, but I'm, I'm just going to tell you up front, we're not going to get to all of them. Uh, we're going to miss out on a bunch of them. And it's just another reason for you to be reading along with us. Uh, you know, you got a worship program today and on the back, there's a reading plan, uh, that will kind of show you over the next few weeks, how you can read along in your own Bible. Uh, if you're reading from the story directly, uh, You know, we're in chapter 15 today, read chapter 16 uh, for next week. Uh, If you're in your own Bibles today, we're going to start out in 1 Kings 16 uh, here in a second, but let me just kind of set up where we are today, kind of give you some context. Uh, Just as a review, and and from last week especially, last week we learned how God's nation uh, was split into two kingdoms. There was division in the land, Uh, there was the northern kingdom, and there was the southern kingdom. Now, Jeroboam was the first king of the northern kingdom, and that's the area that we're we're going to focus in on today. And he had um, all of these people in the northern kingdom who were accustomed to traveling to Jerusalem so that they might worship at God's temple. Now, the problem for Jeroboam and the people of the northern kingdom was that Jerusalem was in the southern kingdom. And so they had to travel into the southern kingdom in order to go to the temple. And well, the people of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom weren't getting along. Their kings weren't getting along. Jeroboam, again, the king of the northern kingdom, he was a little jealous. Uh, He didn't like this idea of his people traveling to the south to worship. So what he did was he came up with a solution. And he made some idols, some false gods. And he said to the people, hey, you don't have to make the road trip to Jerusalem anymore. Just stay in town. I mean, the traffic's rough. It's a long drive. I mean, come on. You know, people in the south, they talk funny too. You don't want to go down there. And so he said, stay here and worship these gods. Now, the words, these gods, say it all. I mean, what's he talking about? What's Jeroboam promoting? It's false idols. I mean, this is idolatry that we're looking at today. And one of Jeroboam's greatest mistakes as a ruler is that he introduced the people of the northern kingdom to these idols. And from here on, for the next uh, chapters that we're going to be looking at, we're going to see how bad things went. You know, and over the years, idolatry becomes more and more prevalent in the north until you finally get to the day of King Ahab. And this is where we pick it up in 1 Kings. Chapter 16, starting in verse 29, here's what it says. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, now Judah is the southern kingdom. We'll talk about them a little bit more next week. Ahab, son of Omri, king of Israel to the north. And so now Ahab is leading the northern kingdom. It says, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. And then verse 30, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Now, how would you like to have words like that on your tombstone? He did more evil in the eyes of the Lord. I mean, that's what Ahab's known for. This is his legacy. But before we go throwing him under the bus, let's not be so quick to judge. Because when you think about it, is he really any different than you and me? I mean, look at it like this. I mean, Ahab was trapped by his own selfish choices. I've been there. Uh, Ahab was unwilling to listen to God. I I can't tell you how many times I've been guilty of something like that. Uh, Ahab was willing, unwilling to do the right thing. I mean, how many of you could say that about your past week? Ahab married an evil woman. I mean, how many of you could say that? Wait, wait, don't answer that question. Don't, Don't go there. No hands up for that one. But But if you know the story of Ahab at all, you know part of the problem for Ahab was his wife Jezebel. He was married to this woman named Jezebel. Now, when I say Jezebel, I mean the Jezebel, all right? Not a Jezebel, but the Jezebel. And when she came on the scene in Israel, she built a temple to her god, the god of Baal, B-A-A-L. And Baal was the god of the weather. Now, that's an important detail that we're going to come back to in just a second. But because of her position and her influence in the northern kingdom, many of the people quickly turned to Baal too. And from there, what Jezebel did was that she launched this violent assault against God and his people. And before long, she orders a massacre of all of the prophets of the Lord. And eventually God says, enough. I mean, he's had enough of this mess. And so what he does is he calls a man, a prophet by the name of Elijah, and he sends Elijah to the people of the north with a message, with a word from God. Now, let me just stop there for a second because I want to add this. This prophet work is not easy, all right, Uh, for Elijah, for any of the others. I mean, Jezebel has already killed a bunch of prophets. Elijah knows that. He's aware of that. But it doesn't matter. And let me just say something about this too. Let me say something else about the prophets. I mean, again, as you can imagine, they weren't always popular with God's people. And do you know why? Well, because sometimes the word of God is difficult. It's challenging for us to hear and to receive. And in fact, for all of us, you know, there's going to come a time in your life where God says one thing, but it doesn't line up with what we believe or with what we think. And when we come to a point and we've got a choice to make, you know, maybe one of two choices that the, that is that so we can stop listening to what God has to say and just abandon the warning signs or, you know, the other side is that we can reexamine what we've been thinking or what's been going on in our own minds, and our own hearts to understand better what is true. Let me tell you why this is important, because none of us is perfect, Right. I mean, none of us has it all figured out. None of us knows everything. But what God wants to do is He wants to shape us and He wants to mold us and and He wants to make us more like Him. But if we're not willing to take a hard look at how we're living and how we're believing, I mean, in other words, if we're not willing to change, He can't possibly do and make us into everything He's wanting to make us into. But sometimes what we do is we cling so hard to what we believe is true that our hearts are hardened to what God says is true. And so in response, we just totally ignore all of the warning signs. And that's what's happening here for these people in the north. I mean, and, and so God tasked Elijah with this mission to go before Ahab the king and with Jezebel, to Jezebel, with a very difficult message about how much trouble they're in. And you can guess how Ahab and Jezebel respond. I mean, you know, they're not going to take it well, but Elijah's faithful and he goes to Ahab and here's what he says over in first Kings 17 verse one. It says, now Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except my word. And so Elijah just basically says, Hey, it's not going to rain anymore. There's not even going to be any moisture on the ground. There'll be no dew. It's going to be, it's going to get bad. And this will serve to you as God's warning sign. But again, I mean, what's the problem for God's people at this time in history in the northern kingdom? The key word's idolatry. It's the word idolatry. Now that, now at first glance, and especially if you're new to all this, it kind of seems dumb, right? I mean, you think about something like idolatry and, well, it kind of makes you feel a little bit better about your own mistakes or some of the choices that you've made along the way. I mean, really, I mean, how can you be so stupid to bow down to a false God, to a man-made statue? I mean, who does that anyways? I mean, idolatry seems so dumb, but do you know it's the number one problem in all of the Bible? In fact, the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments deal specifically with this issue of idolatry. And get this, there are more than a thousand verses in the Bible that speak about, that speak on this issue of idolatry. And and I don't know how you feel about it, but I used to get to those parts in the Bible and read about things like the God of Baal and the God Ashtoreth and others and and want to just rush by them. I mean, you just kind of look at them and think, okay, how is this relevant to my life, to your life in America in 2013? I mean, maybe idolatry was a problem then, but now? I mean, I don't have any golden calves in my house, do you? Kyle Eidelman uh, has a brand new book out uh, called God's at War... And in it, he talks about a friend of his that recently took a mission trip to India and how on this trip, this friend visited a number of places, a number of different homes. And he later showed Kyle these pictures from homes where in one room in these houses, all of the chairs would be aligned, would be arranged uh, intentionally so that the uh, gold statue, the idol of the house was directly uh, in the center uh, of this living area. It was a, a sign that this idol... Was the idol to be worshipped in the home? And Kyle writes it like this. He says, "You know, I saw the picture, and it seemed like a it, it, it seemed a little primitive to me. I mean, it's hard to imagine that there are still cultures out there that do this type of thing." And then he writes this. And then I go to my family room, and I notice how every chair is carefully arranged around the fireplace mantle that has the flat screen TV sitting on it. And then he just asks this powerful question. Are our idols really any different? You know, more than you realize, we've got these false gods and these false images all around us. I mean, as Americans, we have a, an incredible problem with idolatry. I've got a problem with idolatry And at first glance, the subject of idols and false gods, I mean, it seems so primitive, but then I can't help but think about how we treat our TVs and our smartphones and our cars and our bank accounts and our relationships and our kids and our homes. And I look at what sports uh, do to us and how much we pay to build stadiums. And you can't help but ask, are our idols really any different? I mean, maybe we just don't see them that way. Now, when we think idols, you know, are... Instant responses to think gold carvings and man-made statues. But if you're taking notes, write this down. An idol is anything that takes God's place in your life. It's anything that we allow to take God's first and rightful and the central place in our lives. Idolatry is building your identity on anything other than God. It's anything that takes priority, God's proper place in your life. Uh, Tim Keller says, writes it like this. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. It's anything so central to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. It can be family or children or career and making money or achievement and critical acclaim or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue or even success in ministry. He says when your meaning in life is to fix someone else's life, we may call it codependency, but it's really idolatry. An idol is whatever you look at and say, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. Again, an idol is anything in your life and in my life that we allow to take God's place at the center. And for Ahab and Jezebel and for much of the northern kingdom, I mean, they allowed this God of Baal to take the place of God in their lives. And I just want to take a moment to ask you here today, what is it for you? What's that God for you? That small G God, that, that idol, that, that false image that we so quickly allow to take God's place in our lives. An idol is anything that we allow to take God's first and central place in our lives. And that's the problem here in the northern kingdom. But it's just as real and as great of a problem today. And what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to just take a few minutes, if we could... And ask some questions of you and of me that we might be able to better identify maybe what some of those idols are in our lives. I was listening uh, to a message on this subject of idolatry uh, just the other day. And the pastor preaching posed some questions that were once raised by an English pastor living back way back in the 16th century. But questions to help people like you and me identify the idols in our hearts. And uh, if you want to follow along, we've left some blanks for you to write down those questions because I realize that all of this processing and identification might not take place in the course of the next few minutes, but maybe some questions that you'll take with you this week and take some time with and pray through and just even ask God to bring some things to light for you. Seven questions to help identify those idols. The first one is this, what are you most disappointed with in life right now? You know, career, finances, sex, life, family, what are you most disappointed in? Now, don't get me wrong. There, some disappointment in life is natural. I mean, we can expect that disappointment, but whatever you are disappointed with right now in life might point to something you've put your hope in. And instead of putting your hope in God, I mean, we've we've got our hope tied to this or to that. And and all of a sudden, when life's not working out, then we're looking and we're reflecting on this disappointment and letdown. Uh, Another way of looking at a question like this might be to ask yourself, what do you complain about? I mean, what you complain about might be an indicator or might be a way of revealing something in your life that you've put your hope in, something that has replaced God. First and priority in your life. The second question is, what do you sacrifice your time and money for? I mean, where you spend your money has a lot to say about this potential idol in your life and in my life. I mean, do you sacrifice and prioritize your money for the Lord and for His work? But maybe it's a person. Uh, maybe it's a car or a hobby Maybe it's the security that you find in investments. It's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He was talking about idols. The third thing is, what do you worry about? What scares you? I mean, what is it that you would look at in your life and you would say, if I lost this or if I lost that, if if that relationship were taken away from me, well, then my life would hardly be worth living at all. I mean, what you worry about has a way of showing who or what we worship. The fourth question is, uh, where do you go when you're hurting? I mean, where do you go when life is hard or complicated or stressful or, or frightening? I mean, where do you find your comfort? I mean, maybe it's the refrigerator or a particular comfort food. Or instead of turning to God, I mean, we help ourselves uh, feel better by drinking or, or turning to things like drugs. I mean, I, I see so many people that are just lost in their phone all of the time. I mean, when you go out in public, you know, we just think if I drown myself in Facebook or if I drown myself in Twitter or Instagram, if I, if I can go to another place where I don't have to really face what's going on around me right now, well, I'll just kind of lose myself there. I mean, men, when things aren't going well in your marriage uh, with your wife, do you turn to things like pornography for satisfaction? Uh, pornography quickly becomes an idol. I mean, Or maybe you have after a, a really hard day or something, you just come home and you drop in front of the TV and you flip through the 900 channels of nothing on whatsoever because you don't have to think about anything else. I mean, when we go to something or someone other than God with the hurts and the pains of this life, well, it has a way of revealing Something that has become an idol. The fifth question is, what makes you mad or angry? Um, You know, maybe your team doesn't make the playoffs uh, and it ruins the whole week. Uh, I I remember one of my college roommates, uh, a good buddy of mine, was a diehard uh, Ohio State Buckeyes fan. And go ahead and cheer, just get it out if you're a Buckeyes fan, if you want. But he was a diehard fan, and when they lost, He was miserable. I mean, when the football team lost, he was a wreck. Now, we didn't help it at all. I mean, we would do everything we could to get under his skin and really take him to the edge uh, if we could. Um, But maybe for you, when somebody treats you with disrespect or disagrees with a decision or something you've said and, and you get angry to the point that you won't let it go, I mean, does that say something? The sixth question is, what brings you the most joy? I mean, what makes you laugh? Now, this is the challenging part of the evaluation because there are plenty of things that make us laugh and plenty of things that bring us joy, and there is nothing wrong with these things. In fact, in so many of these situations, these gifts are often gifts from God. They are His blessings, even good gifts from God. But here's where the problem comes in. It's, it's what we do with those gifts. It's how we see those gifts. I mean, if we don't allow those gifts to draw us closer to God then chances are that these gifts have become God's primary competition. And instead of worshiping the giver, we worship the gift. And so for you, what are some of those things that make you happy? And are you worshiping the gift or are you worshiping the giver? And the last question is, whose applause do you live for? I mean, whose approval matters the most to you? I mean, is it a a boss or a supervisor, a spouse, a parent? A boyfriend or girlfriend, who do you live for? I mean, whose applause you live for says a lot about who is at the center of your life. See, an idol is anything that takes God's place in our life, it's anything that we look to do for us, only what God can do. And when we go looking to find our answers and fulfillment and satisfaction in anything but Him, it becomes an idol. You know, that, that's why you could say that an idol is nothing more than a cheap substitute. I mean, it's like turkey bacon, right? I mean, you can, you can eat it and you can pretend and you can tell yourself how healthy it is and maybe even get to this place where you say you enjoy it. But deep down in your heart, you know that it's not the real thing. I mean, it is nothing more than a cheap substitute or something. And that's the danger with idols. They're just cheap substitutes. And in the Bible, God constantly addresses this issue of idolatry. And he speaks to his people over and over again through the prophets. And he warns them about where they are and where they're going and the danger that's ahead of them. And that's what Elijah does for Ahab and the people of the north. Elijah says, hey, there's a drought coming. There's not going to be any rain. You've been warned. And it's during this time that you're going to see how phony your gods really are. And this is pretty interesting. Now that um, Baal, okay, this God of Baal that they were worshiping in the northern kingdom was predominantly thought of as the God of the weather. The weather produced the rain. You know, he's the false God of the rain that the people are worshiping in the northern kingdom. And I I hope you see here, I hope you just see what God's doing and how God is even going to remove this blessing in this area of their lives, something that has been elevated to God's status. I mean, they've been worshiping the God of rain and what God says is fine, I'll just withhold the rain. And this is so important for you and me, and here's why. And one person said it like this, and I I just read this, and I thought, wow. He says, don't be surprised when there's a drought in your life that matches up with something that has become equal to God in your heart. Let me just say that again. Don't be surprised when there's a drought in your life that matches up with something that has become equal to God in your heart. God's not going to bless an idol he's not going to bless his primary competition. And so if you've been praying, God, bless my career, but your life focuses on and is centered in, and nothing is more important than your career to the point that it is taking the place of the priority of your family and your marriage or spending any time at all whatsoever with God, and you pray, God, would you bless this career? Don't be surprised if he's not willing to bless his primary competition in your life. If if you've been praying, God bless me financially, but money is everything to you. I mean, it is how you are wired. I mean, if you've if you placed the value of money before your family or your marriage, if if you're not honoring God with any part of your personal wealth so ever, don't be surprised if God is withholding his blessing in this area of your life too. If you're not honoring God in your dating relationship, especially when it comes to sexual matters. Don't be surprised if he's not going to withhold his blessing in that relationship. And for Ahab and Jezebel and all these people, I mean, God's going to withhold the rain in order to get their attention. He's going to withhold the rain until they finally see and discover that the Jehovah God is the only true God. But don't miss this. God loves to give us good things. He wants to bless you and me and his people. But he's not going to bless an area of your life that you've allowed, that I've allowed to replace him. Well, this drought that Elijah talks about, it comes as announced. And fast forward, um, just as promised after years of drought, Elijah goes back uh, to the heart, to the center of the problem of it all. He goes to this center of the problem with Ahab and to these false gods, where these false gods are, and all of these false prophets that they've brought into the land. And in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 17, it, writes, it, it reads like this, when he saw Elijah, this is Ahab, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel, He replies, I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. Here's the problem. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. And at this point, Elijah has had enough, really. I mean, he's been kind of experiencing the same challenges as this drought, too. And so he's like, hey, Ahab, let's settle this once and for all. I mean, let's really get to the heart of the matter. Here's what I want you to do. You get your 850 prophets of Baal and meet me at Mount Carmel. And that's what Ahab did. And so all of these prophets, all of these false prophets gathered at Mount Carmel, as well as a number of people from the nearby area of Israel. And so Mount Carmel really becomes like a stadium of sorts for this great showdown. And in verse 21... It says Elijah went before the people, and so he steps out in front of this stadium, if you would, and all of these people, in front of all of these false prophets, and he says, how long, just a great question, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And then notice those words. It just says, but the people said nothing. Now, why nothing? Well, I think it's because the people wanted both. It's not that they didn't want God in their lives. But if they wanted just God, they would have said, hey, we want God. And, and even with the Baals, if they wanted just the Baals, they would have said, hey, we want Baal. We pick Baal. But they didn't. They didn't say anything. They said nothing because they wanted both. And I think that's the problem. I think that's the challenge for me and for so many of us is that we settle for both. And even as Christians, even as followers of Jesus, I mean, we want God. It's not that we don't want God, but we think it has to be about God and something else, that God can't fully deliver on everything that we need and all of his promises. And so we want, we want it to be Jesus, but something else in our life too. But God just keeps saying, no, you're going to have to choose because only one can be at the center. Only one can be the priority. And so Elijah said for the very same crowd too, he said, hey, you're going to have to choose. They can't be both God. And the people said nothing over in verse 25. And this is really where the competition, the cage match, if you would, comes together. Verse 25, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, hey, here's what I want you to do. Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first. Since there are so many of you call on the name of your God. Now, this is small g God, but do not light the fire. So verse 26 says, so they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Okay, this isn't going well. After these prophets of Baal, they're crying out, Baal, answer us. They shouted, but there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. And then verse 27, at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. you got to love that. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's using the restroom or something. You know, maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. And then in verse 28, they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until the blood flowed. You know, it seems funny and ridiculous that they would go to such extremes to call on their gods. But think about, just think this, think about what extremes we'll go to to satisfy our need for money and pleasure and love and satisfaction and fulfillment today i mean it's a tragic example of what's happening even in our own country i mean how much blood sweat and tears have you sacrificed for the sake of your idols i mean these prophets bleed and nothing happens but now it's elijah's turn and uh, if you know the story you know what happens he just he digs this trench if you would around this altar He gathers a bunch of wood, and then he soaks it in all kinds of water. And it's not that he's being cocky, although I wonder if there's just a teeny tiny bit of that in there. But he soaks all of this wood. He's confident in the Lord. And then skipping over in verse 36, and here's what I want to ask you to do. Just kind of settle in for a second and pretend you're standing in the crowd, and you've been one like so many others to put all of your attention and all of your focus in something other than God. And here's how God delivers. Verse 36, it says, At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, our God, And that you are turning their hearts back again. Verse 38 says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up all the water in the trench. And then in verse 39 it says, When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And not too long after that, it started raining. But before it ever started raining, I want you to see how the people responded. It's called repentance. It's called surrender. It's people turning all of their heart and all of their attention back to God. I love this quote by a a theologian who died back in 1952, I believe, a guy by the name of A.W. Pink, he said it like this, the great mistake by people is hoping to discover in themselves that which is to be found in Christ alone. I mean, the mistake the people of Israel made is that they went looking to these false idols to do what only God can do. And Again, I just can't help but think how easy it is for people like you and me to turn somewhere else. I mean, we go looking for fulfillment and satisfaction and answers and purpose and things other than God. I mean, we ask our false idols to do for us what God wants to do, the gifts that he wants to give. And our great mistake is that we go looking for answers to our greatest needs in something other than Jesus Christ. And again, the problem, the problem is that these idols can't deliver And they don't, and time expires, and once and for all, we finally discover that they're nothing more than a cheap substitute for God. The great mistake by people is hoping to discover in themselves that which is to be found in Christ alone. I just want to ask you today, what mistake have you made? What's that idol or that image For you, I mean, have you been looking for life and satisfaction and hope in something other than God? Um, As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, have you been trying to make your life about Jesus and something else? The warning of the prophets was that there is nothing and that there is no one that can sit on the throne of your heart other than God. It's not a seat made for two. And if today, if there is something, if there is someone in your life that you've been sharing your heart with, I want to challenge you. I want to invite you. I plead with you to repent of that sin and turn your heart and turn your life back to God and put God in his rightful place. And you can do that today. And I can promise you that God will take you back. Let's pray. God would you would you let our lives be all about you and your name and your glory Lord would you open our hearts today so that we might see those things in our life